you know, Daniel's conclusion highlighted some of the things that are occurring uh, within the church today by way of its compromise and its methodologies and things like this. And these are the temptations that we face uh, in our own generation with regard to being faithful and true to God's purposes for his church. And um, before we go to lunch, we have an opportunity to give some attention and thought to one of those trends that's facing the church today. And I invited Chad Vegas to join us uh, this morning. Chad is pastor of Sovereign Grace Church in Bakersfield, and he also serves on the board of directors for Radius International. And I asked if Chad would come today and give me a chance just to ask him a few questions, and in so doing, highlight uh, some of the areas that we need to be on our guard today with regard to not just the church in general, but particularly uh, church planting movements and things that are very popular within today's uh, world of missions. So, uh, Chad, thanks for joining us today, and maybe take a moment and tell us about Radius International first of all. What does Radius do? Yeah, thank you um, for having us here at all. Um, It's humbling to follow you, brother. Uh, Wong, thank you so much. Um, Radius was started several years ago because we had the desire to see young people trained well to go plant churches among unreached people groups. If I use the most conservative number we have today, about 3,100 people groups have zero gospel witness. That means there is no Christian witness in their language. There is no church in their language. There is no Bible in their language. That's the most conservative number we currently have. Um, And we wanted to see people trained well to go to those people groups and bring the gospel of Jesus Christ to them, to plant churches among them, to translate the Bible among them, um, and to just do that very difficult, um, long-term work. So as we began to raise people up for that, we noticed there wasn't a lot of training that took seriously what that looked like. Most sending agencies were training um, young people who were going to go do this. They might have Bible college. They might have seminary. They would go to the sending agency, and they would get about two to six weeks of training. Imagine that. You're going to move to a language that you don't know, to a culture you don't know, You're going to move in there. Uh, You may have to create a written language for them. So you're going to learn their language. You may have to create a written language for them. You may have to teach them how to read that language. You may have to translate the Bible, or you will have to translate the Bible into that language. You will have to come to understand who they believe God to be or the gods to be and begin to unwind that starting in Genesis and walk them through the whole of Scripture. Plant the church, train elders and deacons, turn that church over, learn how to live in that context, the whole gamut, and you were going to get two to six weeks of training to do it, you know. And so we, we knew that was insurmountable and, and a bit insane, frankly. And so we uh, started Radius International for the purpose of training young people to do that. We started with one campus, went to two now that's opening this summer. And we have a campus um, in Taiwan opening in September, uh, Radius Asia, which will be training the Mandarin Chinese-speaking church to do the same. Tremendous. Now, with regard to issues in missions today that Radius uh, International is attempting to address and face, what are some of those issues? Well, so when we started this, we just wanted to train people to go out. As we did that and ran into the sending agencies and began meeting with leadership of various sending agencies, we started to find out that the problems in the missions world were much deeper than we really, I think, previously understood. We, we were aware of the insider movements, which I, probably many of you have heard of, 
the idea, depending on where someone is on the C scale, but generally the idea that, that it's encouraged that someone goes into, for example, a Muslim people group and maintains their Muslim identity, continues to worship in the mosque, etc., but is called a Jesus follower. Some of the controversies that came of that with regard to translation language, do we translate son of God as son of God because that might be offensive um, to Muslims who deny that in their purity of faith, their sorrow in the purity of faith, you know, say that Allah is one and he has not a son. Well, if that's what the Quran says and then we translate that he has a son, that might be a barrier. And so they were saying we should remove that. And, and some of this, this kind of methodology that, that just took us right off the tracks. But that, had, that morphed over years into what's called church planting movements, um, which really was popularized uh, by a variety of um, figures in the missions world. Church planting movements then has recently morphed into what we might call disciple-making movements. Church planting is too much about planting churches. We really need to be about making disciples, which sounds very nice on the surface that we want to make disciples. Um, but what that generally means is that you, you would go into a people group as a missionary, and when you arrive there, you would look for a person of peace. Used to be called man of peace, but we're in a different day, right? Now it's a person of peace. So you would look for a person of peace. You would identify them through some kind of positive affirmation. In some way, they would positively affirm what you were saying um, about God. You might say, God bless you, or Jesus loves you, and then, and then they respond positively to that. That's your person of peace. That is now your church planter. You get them to get a family or friends together. You give them a discovery Bible study. They then interpret the Bible without any believers present, preferably. The missionary should not be there. The unbelievers should interpret the Bible on their own. They find a principle to obey. They call it obedience-based discipleship. Um, they obey those principles each day as they go through Scripture until they come into full submission to Jesus Christ and they're saved. In fact, one of the popular writers of this movement, perhaps maybe the most popular or second most popular writer of this movement, defined faith this way. This is a direct quote. Faith is defined as continuous acts of obedience. Stop and consider that. Justification by continuous acts of obedience. Um, so, so that's, they, when they get a group of unbelievers together doing that, translating or, or studying the Bible together, keeping the principles together, if you will, obeying together, they'd call that a church. Whether they've, anybody's converted to Christ or not, that's a church. And then if you do it again, another church. And you do it again, another church. And if you get, that's how these guys will say, we planted a thousand churches this year. And you wonder, how, did that, how is that possible? Well, if that's what you call a church, it's not very difficult. This is tied to the, the discussions about Muslim dreams and all of these kinds of discussions. So we ran into this and we thought, oh, this is a problem here and there. As we worked with the various sending agencies, we found out this is, this is a prevalent problem. This is the predominant method used by them all. Um, and so we were, we were stunned by that. There are a couple of exceptions of organizations you probably have never heard of. They're real small, more mom and pop size organizations. But of the large organizations, this was the predominant thing. Uh, I've made the same observation over the years teaching missions that these trends have become so per pervasive and uh, have really intruded on 
even the most historically conservative of mission agencies. This, we're facing a generational shift in leadership in these organizations, and many of them received their uh, advanced training in missiology at schools that have really uh, embraced what I term hyper-contextualization, and therefore you've got these kinds of, of methodologies. And uh, it's interesting because this is all coming from the West, but in many cases, particularly in our experience, what you see among many nationals is they hunger for a word-based approach, a biblical approach to church planting. Now, recently I had the chance to hear you debate the president of Missio Nexus, Ted Essler, on the subject of the church planting movements, uh, as you just described, but you brought forward what you term a proclamational model of church planting. So explain that for us. Yeah, well, it's actually Ted's term. So we just said we, we, tr we do what Christian missionaries traditionally biblically do. Um, Ted had written an article for Missions Frontiers magazine for a, an organization called Frontiers Missions. Um, and in that article, he had come up with two models. The church planting model, what is now largely called the DMM model, the disciple-making movements model, or the church planting movements model, the disciple-making movements model. He had, he had that, and then he contrasted that with the traditional model, which he termed the proclamational model. And his argument was that at the heart of the traditional model is the proclamation of the gospel. And that the big distinction between the traditional model, the proclamational model, and the church planting movement or disciple making model is that in the church planting movement, disciple making model, the missionary is a coach, a facilitator, is in the background, does not teach. Does not teach. Because the proclamational model of teaching, and I heard this from a major leader at the US Center for World Missions as well, and baptizing teaching about our Western impositions. Some, someone needs to tell that to John the Baptist and Jesus quick, fast, in a hurry, because I don't think they knew they were from the West uh, or from the modern era. But that, that those are Western impositions. So that's, that's become quite a problem. So we, I had written an article, um, a brief guide to DMM, Disciple Making Movements. You can find it at radiusinternational.org. We have it there. Um, so I, I wrote an article under our resources page. I wrote an article on DMM. That kind of went throughout the sending agencies. Some of the sending agencies were clamoring for more discussion. We were saying, let's have more discussion. And they encouraged us, uh, many of them, to debate Ted Essler. Some of them came. And so Ted Essler and I had a debate on this. He had written his dissertation on church planning movements, so he was a good choice to debate. We thought we'd bring a segment of that debate to you uh, today. So we're going to watch it now. And just to direct your attention to the screens. And as you do, just uh, so you are aware, if you want to hear the full debate, and I would encourage you to do so, uh, the link is listed in our resource guide there uh, in your program today. And so you're welcome to do that following our conference. But let's listen in for a moment on this debate between Chad and Ted. What is unique then about church planning movements? I mean, what, what would you say yeah. is something we're telling our students, don't go do that. Okay. Do this instead. What's, what's unique? I think probably the biggest unique factor is the indigenous, the emphasis on indigeneity. In other words, letting people from within that culture organize, move, all that business. This is one reason why you hear people say, well, we don't let missionaries into the Bible studies, okay? We would prefer that that doesn't happen. It's the emphasis on the indigenous. So that'd be one thing. But what follows on the heels of that that's unique is the role of the missionary is the role of the missionary to be the Apostle Paul or to be Barnabas? Are you to walk alongside 
in the shadows or are you to be the one out front being in the center of the ministry? I would say that that would be the two biggest unique things that I see in the distinction between missionaries trying one model versus the other model. Is there an assumption then that unbelievers are able to interpret the scriptures accurately without the necessity of any kind of teacher? And where do we see that ever occur in scripture? Basically, what the Westminster Confession says is that the Bible is sufficient for all things in our faith and our understanding. And I do think that one of the phrases that the CPMer camp makes that can be a little bit hard to swallow is that we need to trust that the scriptures are powerful enough and that the Holy Spirit can work in the hearts of people. And I'm monogeristic about faith, okay? That means I believe the Holy Spirit's the mover. So that would be kind of my answer to that. We, we believe Scripture's clear. We, we don't believe that all Scripture is equally clear, obviously. Some, some texts are more difficult than others for us to interpret. Um, we would embrace that. Um, it, it's because of the clarity of Scripture that we're actually able to understand what it is that the missionary task is, in fact. It's part of what I'm trying to argue. So I would say this. No, we shouldn't have unbelievers as an ordinary, as an ordinary approach reading the Bible on their own without someone teaching. Now, I, I, I emphasize the word ordinary on purpose. I'm not saying that the Lord can't do extraordinary things. The, Bibles can be dropped somewhere. Someone could read them and come to Christ. Listen, we have examples of donkeys that God speaks through. A, God speaks through a donkey. But we don't then say, let's airlift donkeys into unreached people groups and pray God will speak through them, right? That's an extraordinary circumstance. So I'm not suggesting that there aren't extraordinary circumstances where someone comes across the Bible and comes to Christ. The question is not what can God do through his word. God can do anything he wants, and to say otherwise is blasphemous. The question is, what does God command us to do in his word? What does he get, what's the task he's given us? Can an unbeliever read the Bible and get it right? I suppose that can happen. Is that ordinarily what God has commanded us to do? No, clearly he never has. He's commanded us to come alongside unbelievers and declare the biblical truth to them. When Paul leaves um, Ephesus and he writes the letter to the, the Ephesian elders, he talks about how I spent my last two years in the synagogue, in the hall, out from house to house, teaching you in public and from house to house, teaching and proclaiming and preaching and making sure you're set up. And then he goes on to warn the elders and he warns them. So my take is Paul's take. What does he say? He tells them to be on guard, be on alert, be on the watch. Why? Because false teachers are going to rise up from among you, from among your own number. That means the elders, by the way. They either didn't heed his warning, or even in heeding his warning, it still happened. I'm not sure. But by the time you get to First and Second Timothy, Paul's having to send Timothy to that same church, Ephesus, to clean out faulty elders, and to install new elders who will make sure they don't go back down that bad road. So the idea that we're just going to throw Bibles out there to unbelievers, they're going to interpret it and get it right is absurd. It's, it's insane, I think, actually. We have a whole history in America of people who don't know how to read the Bible starting cults. And so the question is, and by the way, can we even verify what these people are being hearing and learning and teaching if we don't know their language at a deep enough level to even verify, how do we know that we're not just going across the world giving out Bibles, starting a whole new cult? The only way your argument holds water is if, in fact, 
these movements are creating a lot of heresy. And the only way you'd know that would be to go out and talk to the people involved. And the only way you can do that is if you know their language well enough to know what they're saying. Right? And I have sat with dozens of people that speak the language, that work with me in understanding where they're at. And, and I guarantee you, heresy is not one of the big concerns that I personally would have. That's the president of one of the largest mission organizations in America today. Um, you need to be on your guard. Uh, you know, Chad, John said something in the first session. Uh, he said, I just was called to be faithful to the proclamation of the word. And uh, then you see the fruit born in a mature church that reproduces itself and so forth. Um, what we see today being heralded are things like the rapid church planting movement. I read one time a gentleman, I believe it was India, claimed to have planted 50,000 churches in one year. That's remarkable, and I'm sure that that means a lot to um, donors and supporters and things like that. But that's not what we see in the New Testament, is it? No, no, clearly not. Uh, they, in the church planting movement, they're going to want to argue that, in fact, he does in the debate, that Paul just sort of, he's so quick about it, he just kind of walks around uh, Rome just dropping churches as he walks by. That's, what, that's a line he uses. Um, listen, Paul, Paul was places as long as he often could be. Generally, if he was somewhere for a short period of time, he was run out. And then he attempted to come back and set up elders. So that church was strongly established. Um, and so it's, it's just not the case the New Testament has in mind, this idea that, that we go out and, and sort of throw a Bible out there in a person's language and hope they make, make headway with it with their group of family and friends um, and then call that a church. It's, it's, I wasn't trying to be rude when I was saying it's insane, but it's just nuts. I, I, I just... I actually, I had to hold my tongue at one point because he just said, I don't see error as being a big problem or heresy being a big problem. I thought to myself, then you clearly haven't read past Genesis 2 because you get to Genesis 3-1 and error and heresy begin and they carry on out until you're to Genesis 21. I mean, Revelation 21, sorry. Revelation 21. So the idea that, that that's not a big problem is just, just, you're out of your mind. Do you think that? Well, it's also... Uh not only is it very pragmatic in nature and coming from a Western mindset where numbers define success, uh, we have to repent of that, frankly. That is not what the Lord calls us to. He calls us to faithfulness. Um, but second of all, this uh, current thinking also marries with a lot of the popular ideas right now that are being termed as post-colonialism. This is a, a rejection of anything from the West. And there certainly were a lot of offenses and abuses, and I would say even injustices that were characterized under the period of colonialization. But also at the same time, uh, during that period, you saw the expansion of the missionary movement and the advance of the gospel in many lands as a result. So with post-colonialization or this idea that Westerners have no role or should not be involved, there's this... Um, it's been popularized, this idea that the Westerners should not have any role uh, in the work of planting churches. And so we have to carefully think about these issues today and understand what our responsibility is and realize that all these, uh, these challenges 
traditional uh, church planting work are on the rise. And uh, one of the things that Radius does so well is they have a commitment to equip and train pastors and church leaders to know about these trends in missions. Can you talk about that for a moment? Yeah, that just sort of has been developing as a result of um, finding out that we're training these young people to send them out on behalf of their churches, and their churches don't recognize the kind of sending institutions they're probably going to have to work with, those agencies and what they might be hearing there. Um, those pastors aren't quite sure what, what, is, what is true and what's not true about what we hear from the mission field. And so we wanted to spend time trying to help pastors unwind some of that as much as we can, help church leaders unwind that. Listen, it's really difficult to sit with a missionary, we all know this, to sit with a missionary, someone who may have spent several years and suffered for the cause of Christ, who's well-intended, and to, and to really question them in a very direct, clear way about, hey, were you doing things biblically? You sound like you're not humble. Like, who are you? You sat, on the, you sat in the background in America and didn't really suffer like I did. Now you're asking these hard questions. And so pastors often feel like they're in an awkward place to ask about all these movements and these conversions. Sounds great. But if you really question it, you're, you're instantly, I, just to put it mildly, you're a jerk. You started asking hard questions, that missionary, he felt bad. Um, he had a great story. What do you mean to question his story, right? And, and that's really um, something that is hard for people to press into. And so we've just basically said, um, you know, in my case, I guess I'll be the jerk for you. So we're just kind of playing that role. If you're, if you're looking for someone to play that role, Radius is trying more and more to just help these churches understand. And, and here's the reason why. Look at this young man, John Chow, who went to the North Sentinelese people. He went there with a, a group called All Nations. All Nations is run, run by a man named Floyd McClung. He writes for Perspectives um, on Christian World Missions curriculum. Um, Floyd McClung is a, a major advocate of the disciple-making movement. This young man was poorly trained, and he was sent to the field, and he was killed. And, and I got to tell you, at some point, sending agencies and churches need to ask really hard questions about whether they get men unnecessarily, in this case, killed. I, don't, I have several people from my church going out. I do not want to stand in, over their coffin in front of their parents or their family members and say, this was totally preventable if we'd only trained them well. Listen, if they were well-trained, things happen. People suffer. People get killed, people get jailed. We understand that. But if it's because we train them poorly and so they show up on an island yelling out, Jesus loves you, looking for a person of peace, you wonder why he was doing that. That's what he was trained to do. And he didn't find a person of peace. And he's dead. And that's tragedy that could have been avoided if we hadn't have gone down a very tragic road as far as, and a very, frankly, errant road as far as our methodology is concerned. So this is weighty, serious stuff. Well, and just to conclude, I think uh, what we're illustrating here is the importance for uh, pastors and missions elders and leaders to take their role seriously, to become literate in the issues of missions, to become good stewards of the people that the Lord is raising up in their church and sending them out, and to make sure that they're entrusted uh, to ministries and organizations that will train them, but also make sure that their philosophy of ministry is in line with uh, what we see in the scripture. So, Chad, thank you for being with us today and for your ministry. Thank you. Grateful.